Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. This is the podcast series that explores the art of leading and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the hospitality and retail sectors. So my name is Lee Sheldon and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm also co-founder of the MMU Training and Development Consultancy, in which we're dedicated to helping managers achieve consistent operational excellence, leading to sustained superior performance. So welcome to episode 41 of the Multi-Site Masters podcast, where we're actually following on the second part of our conversation with two fascinating gentlemen, uh, Chris Humphrey and Malcolm Ross from the consultancy Polaris Jack, who between them have over 30 years of experience with the Walt Disney World theme park organization alone. Uh, working in marketing and the Disney Institute was Chris's background, was Malcolm, a true operator working in the hotel on F&B side uh, outside of Disney, also with some huge international hotel chains such as Marriott, as well as uh, being heavily involved in the delivery of the London 2012 Olympics. Now, our first episode really zoomed in on the importance of purpose, getting it clear, keeping it simple, and ensuring everyone is aligned, teams and individuals to delivering it. But having purpose on its own is not enough. So let's jump straight back into the conversation and hear from Chris while we have to go further from just having a simple, clear and defined purpose. We need to make sure people know how to bring that to life. It's really important to have a purpose in order to give people that overall vision. But you can't just, in the case of Disney, go out there and say go and create happiness or if you're premier in um, just kind of make people feel brilliant after a great night's sleep it ne- in order to operationalise that across the organisation you need some more definition um, and one of the ways of doing that is to create um, what we call standards and behaviours so the, sp- the standards are the of the operating um, priorities that people need to bear in mind um, in their day-to-day roles um, and they add that next layer of definition to the purpose. So for example in the case of Disney it's safety, courtesy, show and efficiency is described as the four keys. Um, and what's, um, what they do is they are the first step in sort of defining the boundaries of that field of play. It's telling the people, you know, if if you're um, fulfilling your purpose, this is how you need to behave. Um, And what's important about those is that they're prioritised. So in the moment, you you have um, a set of decision-making criteria. So in the case of Disney, safety is more important than courtesy, um, courtesy is more important than show, and show is more important than efficiency. So that's one part of that framework. And then underneath that, you need to give some definition to each of those. So there's a set of behaviours that are attached to each of those. Um, and it's about not what you do but how you do it so it's not focused on it's focused on the outcome the definition not trying to micromanage what you do Um, and they're also 
observable, measurable, and coachable. So you've created this architecture, um, which is a, 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 a sort of overarching framework that is rooted in the customer, that is simple, prioritised, behaviourally oriented, outcome oriented, not um, trying to micromanage people. So giving people the framework but creating the boundaries, which then gets permeated through the organisation and that's how you create, it's that, it's that mechanism that creates the link between the customer and everybody in the organisation and gives every, and, and, and binds everybody beyond their narrow departmental um, responsibilities and gives them something bigger um, to think about. What's amazing when you think about it, and we're all sitting here talking about Disney, and you know, for me, I, I left Disney in 2001, so 18 years ago, yet I'm still talking about it as just a, a very clear and uh, focused organisation. But Walt Disney, a legend uh, of a man, created these four keys in 1955. And you know, a lot of water has passed on the bridge since, and Disney is uh, huge by comparison and is international. Um, but it's, so, it's still true today, and they're still the keys that are used today. And they're, they're, they're very simple. They, in a, in a way, they empower the employee, cast members they call them, to act freely in any circumstances, in, in any environment. It, and when the unexpected happens, they have to deliver. And they feel free and empowered to deliver because they know what the goals are, the, key, the keys are, and, then, and where the priorities lie. So there's no conflict. And they feel free that they're not going to do the wrong thing. They're going to be backed by their management for doing the right thing, hopefully. It's simple. I mean, what, what we've talked about, we keep coming back to, you've got to make life hassle-free, but you've also got to make all of the principles, the framework and the culture and um, whatever language you use, you've got to make it simple. Simple to understand, simple to explain, simple to communicate, and simple to measure. And when you do that, it, you know, it's so simple. You know, you, we, I always remember when I first joined Disney, like everybody else, you were, got, you were given a little card, and there were the four keys, and you probably put it in your top pocket or your purse or whatever. And you know, you soon learn, learn them. It's, it's just fundamental. I can still remember now, 18 years after I left, and you know, whether you were the CEO or you know the the, the pot washer, you had the same uh, the same keys. And it's still, it's reinforcing. I mean, the idea is that you you know is it's once you've once you've defined what it is that the customer wants, and then you've you've distilled this into the framework, then you need to just bang away at it. You've got your small number of key repeatable messages and you bang away at it. So, you know, for example, the recognition program, um, you know, people go around the park with, you know, for rec with the recognition program, but the recognition program ties back into the four keys. So you get recognized for f delivering against the four keys. If you go into the staff newspaper, and you go through the articles in the staff newspaper, something like you could probably match about 80% of them back to the four keys. So it's all, but it requires an articulation of it and then building of it so you know what it looks like. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's treading a fine line between 
mass improvisation, which you don't want, and micromanagement, which you don't want. How do you create that? How do you tread that line carefully between those two extremes? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, it, it works very well to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I guess if you probably went to any of Disney's theme parks now and asked the employees, the cast members, you know, what are standards and behaviours, they'd probably scratch their head because, you know, it, it, it's just a way of doing business. They don't, they don't have to refer to the card. They don't have to rehearse this every morning before the shift. It's just the way they do it. I mean, it's, it's the way that they, they do business. Although they are reinforced. If you go back, yeah, if you go back to Disneyland Paris into the staff canteen, the first thing you Constantly reinforced as, as, as what, it, what, what we said earlier, we keep probably repeating ourselves, which is not a bad thing occasionally, is, <laughs> you know, set clear expectations. They know what the expectations are. They know that, you know, Chris referred to it earlier, the boundaries of the dance floor standards, the behaviours, mm. blah, 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 and then let them get on with it mm. and stand back and don't micro, you know, you just mm. mentioned, don't, Chris, don't micromanage. The worst, the most, I think, soul-destroying uh, thing of people, management, leadership, don't delegate, and don't stand back and let them get on with it. And that's what it's all about because, you know, whether as, as a sole trader, as we keep doing this to a multinational company, you can't micromanage everything that's done. I mean, they say a very small business, uh, once it becomes over 30, 35 employees, you have to stand back. Mm. You, you can't micromanage 30 employees. You certainly can't micromanage 3,000 or 30,000. So you've got to let them get on with it. And that's that's what empowering is all about. Yeah. Well, could I ask Malcolm and Chris too, but you have highlighted the four keys as these key standards that Disney live and breathe by. Who else do you think, what other organisations have you come across that you think have their own version, but they're, they've, they've got that clarity around those standards and they, they reinforce it and they're, from a leadership perspective, they bring it to life? Well, without trotting out names, you know, I, I certainly can think of at least a dozen that have something comparable, yeah. So mm. it's, not, it's not rocket science, it's, it's, it's tried and tested formula. I don't think any, I don't think, you know, you have to follow Disney lock, stock and barrel, but, you know, I just think you have to put in place some framework which is, you know, cost-effective and works and you can evolve it and improve it and just because, you know, I'm I'm sure that Disney's have improved everything they've done since 1955 when Walt first started. Well, I know that they have in every aspect of their business, but, yeah, to answer your question, Lee, uh, you know, from my experience of 30, 40 years, certainly a dozen companies have something comparable. They probably don't call them the four keys, but yeah, they, they, I, I, and, but, but what they relate to is behaviours and standards. And, you know, if you don't, then it's free for all. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, but, but you have to, you have to measure them. You know, we, we mm-hmm. keep using the same words um, for, for a lot of questions you ask. And, You've got to put measurement. What gets measured gets done. So you've got to, you can have standards, you can have behaviours, and you can observe and recognise success. But you have to put measurement in. And measurement, and you you know I know that um, you, you you do it as as um, for your business um, managing multi-using sites. But measurement is key, and you've got to have as many listening posts out there and feedback as you can. Mm. And you don't rely on one just one 
area of feedback, you know, you've got to have multiple areas of feedback and, and never never lose track of, you know, what is happening in the business. And you, if you're in leadership, you need, I would say, six or seven very cost-effective ways of measuring what is happening at the coalface. And then you can focus in what needs to be coached and improved. And, you know, from a, from a business point of view, you know, it is about profitable business to sustain a business and therefore we've got to think about productivity. You know, I've never ceased to be amazed of companies that struggle and there's a downturn in business because everything is cyclical and that's the time they start cutting costs and and talking about productivity and cost saving and you know that's the worst time to do it of course. You know, cut cut training, cut marketing, cut advertising. And you know what happens is it just you know, fastens a spiral um, in terms of downward trend. So, you know, in, in a few businesses I've run, the most, cost, the most effective businesses think about productivity when times are good. Mm. So you should be thinking about productivity, not knee-jerk yet, but thinking about a year ahead. So the beginning of a new fiscal year, you should be setting up a process of how, what are the productivity goals that you're going to achieve in the next fiscal year. So you've got a year to think about them. You may need to in, involve some consultants, hopefully not external ones, maybe, but or, but if it's intern, I see medic, because you can get the grassroots mm. uh, people in project teams thinking about three or four key areas of productivity savings that you could have cost, put in place in 12 months' time. And then it should be built into your budget, built into everybody's expectations, and they can be delivered not at the expense of the guests, not at the expense of the customer, the guests, or, or the employees. I love your point. Again, this this is a theme that runs through so many of our podcasts. This, you know, what you measure, you manage, etc. But this idea of actually, I'm what I expect, I inspect. But I'm ins- inspecting it, I'm measuring it because I want to catch people doing something right. I'm yeah. doing it to promote. I love what you've done. Well done. Rather than sometimes I, I'm looking to catch people missing. Yeah. I'm looking for those gaps because I want to knuckle down and bash that performance. Mm-hmm. And I thought I don't know what Andy's view on this was, but Chris's point about the four keys being about the output rather than the specifics of what you what you do. It's all about behaviour and what should happen as a result of you demonstrating that rather than the input. And that, that was interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my kind of take out from all of that is that if you think about the four keys uh, that have just been described um, that, that Disney's use, there's a universality to it um, and there's a timelessness to it that actually means it's as relevant today as it was when they were invented in 1955. And as such, the simplest things are the things that tend to get remembered. And the point that Chris made about um, everything that organisations like Disney do to reinforce those points becomes one of positive reinforcement, whether it's in the newsletters or whatever. It's, in some ways, it's a bit like employee of the month. You know, we've caught Fred doing something really, really positive. All of those things help create a sense of involvement um, and engagement. And when you're involved and you're engaged, then that personal sense of of worth increases to the point where you get people volunteering great ideas to make the experience better for everybody. And when you get that, then the whole point about productivity and all those big questions about innovation that vex every business struggling to survive in a complicated world, they actually are much easier to solve.
some of the best examples I've seen of new new initiatives, um, real quantum leaps forward in productivity or customer uh, service or excellence have been with initiatives that have been instigated by involvement of, of what I call bottom up. And so you get a project team, it's not new to any company, but you know, get volunteers or tap people on the shoulder you think are absolutely going to be perfect to in a project team of five, ten people and get them engaged for three months to focus on something, whatever it is, a new idea, take the hassle out of that experience to add more value, to make us more competitive, make us, you know, differentiate us with the competition. But if, if they're involved, some of the best ideas have come from what I call you know, ground zero, the mm, people grassroots, the grassroots, mm. and get them involved. They, they will, they, they will be dying for the minutes of the meeting. They'll be dying to come to the next meeting. They'll be pumping ideas, and then when a solution is launched, they're right behind it. They've got tremendous pride. You can give them all the recognition that, that they richly deserve. But that's the way to stimulate a business, not top down. You can. It has to be with involvement of leadership, it doesn't have to be the CEO or the managing director all, all the time, get middle management involved and a good cross-section of disciplines and skills and get them well mentored and, and led in those project teams and that's how to really drive great value in the business. And you know, I could think of a lot of examples that I could fall back on, not just in Disney, as you just said, on the Olympics. Uh, some of the hotel companies that I work with, that, that's the way to drive a business, mm, bottom mm. up, get yeah. involvement. Well, one thing that you said earlier that uh, kind of really struck a chord and that was all about um, you know, leading by example um, and clearly what people see is what they often will go and therefore do themselves. Uh, but then thinking about organisations, the bigger they get, um, even though this problem is probably vested in, in even the smallest organisations, truly good leadership doesn't, doesn't just happen. Uh, I mean, in your experience, Malcolm, Chris as well, I mean, you've, you've both seen examples here of great leadership and, and poor leadership. How do you keep a grip of an organisation and lead it in the right direction? I th well, you know, people have written books and... Um, done white papers on it and, and, and all of the, the above. But in my opinion, it's pretty simple. I think uh, I've been asked quite a few times, what, what, how would you describe great leadership? And you know, I think one word or maybe in one word, how would you describe great leadership? I would say it's inspirational. You've got to inspire people. Uh, you've got to be passionate about what you do and it's got to be infectious, that, infectious, that passion. But if you're not highly visible, uh, then you ain't going to do it. If you're sitting in an ivory tower, you sit in the head office now. Okay, you're you're in the business of uh, mastering multi units, and therefore it's it's pretty difficult. When you got if you're an area manager, and you got 10, 15 units. Cause you, but but you have to be visible. So you, it's management by walking about. You know, you've heard that expression many times. But uh, and you have you've got to be unpredictable. You know, I I can relate to any business that I've run, and you've got to be unpredictable. if you know that uh, the the, the the managing director's going to walk around the plant at 11 o'clock, guess what? Uh, nobody's got a tea break or uh, mm. gone to the bathroom. Everybody's working away fast and furious and they know it by 3 o'clock he's, he's gone off somewhere else or in a meeting. Uh, so you've got to be unpredictable, but you've got to be visible. 
And it's not just walking around and saying, hello, 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 how are you doing? And, and, and they don't wait for a reply and they know you, you don't actually spend any personal time with them and eyeball them. So it, it's um, catching people doing things right, making eye contact, knowing, having some, you can use technology to help you, but you, you've got to remember something about the, your employees, your team, um, people who are working diligently every day and doing sometimes very repetitive jobs, making them feel special. So you can, just the smallest thing. The, the feedback I used to get, he cares. Mm. He's, he's definitely on top of things. He's confident. He knows what he's doing. He knows what uh, good performance is and good, um, uh, good work. And, and he's appreciative, but he's a tough taskmaster. He, he, he sets out a, a clear expectations and he makes sure that you deliver. And, but you know, don't just walk around and ignore people. You can switch people off by walking past somebody when they, they just, you know, they say, hello, you've got to give them time. Time is very important. Eye appeal, eye contact and making the, it a personal, mm. and if you make people special, then um, you can put them on the edge if you like. You can keep them, you know, wondering, oh, oh did, did he, did he see me? Is he? Because it, it, you know, I, I know because I everybody has a boss. Do you think I was any different? No. Yeah. No, when my boss turned, I wanted to make sure that he saw me and he gave me some sort of body language that you know he was appreciative. Good job, Malcolm. You know, and I said made me feel a million dollars. How did I? What did I do when I went home that night? My wife said, "Do you have a good day?" Yeah, Dad. Right. Get you know, uh, the boss saw me. Yeah, I didn't have ten minutes. Yeah, I felt great. You know. Didn't give me a pay rise. <laughs> pay rise? What's that? But he uh, certainly made you feel better. No, that's what it's all about. You, so, um, so, so inspirational leadership. So you remind me of um, I had when I became many years ago now an operations manager for the first time. I was out with another operations manager as like a buddy coach, if you like, not formally, but that's what he was doing for me. And when he went to visit his locations, he seemed to know everything. You know, your wife was ill. How is she now? All of this. You, Kids plays coming up, whatever. And I was really impressed by that. And you could tell it was genuine. What really impressed me though, is when he got in the car, his first thing was to get his notepad out and he updated, he had a page for every store and he made notes and he said, for me, this is the discipline bit. It's a pain to sit here and do it, but I do it because it matters. And I want people to know that I genuinely care, but I won't remember. So I make the discipline of getting in the car, not oh, I'll do it when I get home, because I won't. I'll sit here and do it before I drive off. Because I'm going to make sure next time before I go in, I get my notes out again and I just make sure I've got all of my facts straight so I can come in and genuinely say, how's your wife today? How did the kids play go? Whatever it may be. It was that's, the genuine That's bit. a fantastic example. You, you're actually, you know, ringing bells and, and, and for, you know, you always remember the good bosses you've had and the good leaders you've had and mm. you equally remember the bad ones. <laughs> All the not so good ones. But, you know, what I, I don't want to be a wet eye, but, you know, one of the ch most challenging roles I had was probably not at Disney, it was when I was in charge of Meridian Hotels for Europe, at 50 hotels, and how would you, you know, you're in multi-unit, but how would you be able to add value, make an impact, and lead and inspire people if you don't see them very often, because, you, you know, with 50 hotels, you could only see them maybe once a month, if maybe that, but you'd make certain damn right that you saw them once a month, but how did you do that? So I used to go in and... I was used to, the night before I was going to meet, I, obviously because it was a hotel, I'd spend the night there and I'd always have dinner with the general manager and, and ask him to bring three or four of the 
good, great performers or you know new people he wanted me to meet, and so you know that that was the. It felt they thought it was a relaxed time. I wasn't relaxed. I'd done my homework. I, I just like you. I used to use a dictaphone when I left the hotel and jump on an airplane go somewhere else. I would take ten things I, that I, I could take away that I would pick up with next time I, I went back because I would probably forget <laughs> if I didn't have it that prompt. So when the night before I would be talking about the. Not you know one two three four, but just splicing them into the conversation. Some of the gentlemen go, "Blimey, he's got a retentive memory." This guy was hard, and I, I just used my yeah. the tools that you have to use to make certain that I was on top of things. So, and then I'd have the opportunity to inspire and get feedback and listen. You know, the big biggest thing about leadership, the best leaders I've ever had, the ones that listen and, and, and want your feedback and want your um, your input. And then, they, they, and, you know, it's their problem. Then they made the right decision. So, you know, the night before, for argument's sake, I was meeting the general manager, three or four people, I would listen, uh, prompt and ask certain questions, go to bed, use my phone again. And then next day it'd be business. We'd be reviewing the monthly budget, sales marketing, get all of the heads of department in, report out, you know, and then we do a wash up at four o'clock and bingo bango, be in the car and off to the airport. So, you know, it was repetitive, but I, if I didn't do it in a disciplined way, it would be just absolute waste of my time. I'd probably waste of theirs. They'd say, what am I going to achieve now? So I always used to think about it. What value have I left? What have I added? What is that, are those guys going to do differently or do more of? Stop, start and continue. I used to say, what are the things that you're going to stop, start and continue as a result of this visit? So. I would appear relaxed. I would, you know, have some air of confidence about me. But I would, I'd be, have to be disciplined. We talked about earlier, attention to detail. Mm -hmm. I had to manage it like a, a military campaign almost. Because if I didn't, you can't do it by the running. You can't run any business, uh, sole trader or or multi units like you're involved in, or, or multinationals, running a business by the seat of your pants. Uh, you know. Even the greatest entrepreneurs, um, you think they run the business by the seat of the pants, they don't. Mm -hmm. they, they're very disciplined. And uh, that's, that's, I think, what leadership is all about. Well, it was, of course, Walt Disney who said, there's no magic to the magic, it's all in the details. Yeah, yeah. And it is that um, authentic, but really passionate attention to detail. And it doesn't matter to me personally whether or not you use a pad, whether you use a, a dictaphone, an app on your phone, it's irrelevant. It's that desire to want to do it yeah. and to see the value. Because I won't remember next time, but I want to make sure I can circle back congratulate people doing a great job or pick up an area of accountability that maybe was missed but if I don't take that time to do it I might miss it and it's important that I don't yeah good point so, so I think timing is also pretty I think it's absolutely key there's a time and a place for execution I, some of the worst leaders I've ever seen have got over emotional got you know um out of control almost in terms of the way they've reacted and behaved in public and embarrassed people, embarrassed themselves, but they probably didn't realize that. And, you know, would do coaching or, or corrective um, feedback, you know, in, in a public sense and, and make people uncomfortable and it would be uncomfortable to be in that presence and in that in the room. You know, it, it, you know, the worst thing you can do is everything's fine and great and 
keep on doing a good job and you leave and nothing happens, nothing changes. There's a continuous improvement. So mm. there was all, there'd always be a time in, in any visit that I was doing a multi-unit. So, so, so like I was going back to the Meridian days and you know, I would, there'd be two or three things that I want to give that general manager or sales director in that hotel feedback on. And if it was, you know, a little bit, um, not near to the bone, but you know, uncomfortable. Could be uncomfortable if I hadn't done it the right way. I think about what is the best way because you can't. There's not one size fits all. So you have to think, what's the best way of, of delivering that message to this individual? Are they highly sensitive? Are they? Mm. Are they not? How will they? How will they react best? And and uh, so you've got to temper that. And then there's always the time and the place. So you know, I always felt a one to one was always the best basis. And not on your terms, but on their terms. So sometimes it would be take them out of the hotel or find neutral ground, or maybe it was in their office. But you know, you got to think about where, you got to think about how, and then you got to think, you know, how you deliver that message to make it really understood. And if it's a if it's a tough one, you you don't want to be having that same conversation again. So you, this is a one-off. This is the feedback I want to give you. This is what I, I think successful looks like. This is what I want. I think you to focus on, to change behavior, to change uh, the way you manage. And this is what how I would do it if it was in your shoes. This is what I expect of you. And then you know you round off by saying, "Have you got? Please give me your feedback. What do you feel about that? Do you think that's fair? Do you, you know, what are you going to do differently?" Uh, okay, so we set up. Can we set up this? Can we can we touch on it? In two weeks' time, can you send me something back on how you how you handling this situation? And so when we meet again, you be able to give me feedback of what you're doing differently. And I used to get great feedback of that. that, that, that you know, Malcolm, thank you for for the way you did that. It wasn't what you were saying, but it was how you did it. You did it uh, with grace. You did it. You made still made me feel. You know, you left me with my dignity intact. But it was a tough message for me to take on board and swallow but I felt you did it well and I respected you for it and, and I'm able now to move on and I've often had feedback two or three years later when somebody said thank you for, for giving me that feedback it made me a better leader so I, uh, time, place and how you do things is as important as what it is you're doing <laughs> I, uh, I'm literally just uh, almost finished a fantastic book uh, called Radical Candor uh, by a lady called Kim Scott, and I highly recommend it. I promise you, I'm What's not commissioned. Radical Candor. Okay. Lady called Kim Scott, and she talks about this exactly as you've described, Malcolm. This idea of challenging directly but caring personally. Yeah, yeah. And it's getting the balance right. And I, I won't go into. We do a whole podcast on that alone. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I hadn't invented it either. But and but, but I do remember I had an old boss who used to say that you were tough on the issue, soft on the person. And he said, I don't mean soft as in not dealing with the issue, of course. What I mean is you're dealing with the issue directly, the, the behavior that the person did. You're not attacking their worth. You're not attacking their personality. You're yeah. not criticizing them as a human being. Yeah. And he said, always imagine that's your brother, that's your sister, that's your wife, that's your husband, that's your mum, that's your bro- whatever. How would you want them to be treated? Yeah. Don't not treat that other person differently. Always think yeah. about that. And it's been like, Chris said at the very beginning of this, putting yourself the needs of the customer, here is the need of your employee and yeah. what would I want if I was going to be given that feedback yeah. and, and how would I want to be given that feedback uh, so that I feel 
that it's been valuable and it will make a difference mm. to me, but I don't feel that I've been personally attacked. Yeah, and always give them, it was probably in that book you've just referred to, but always give them the right of reply. So, mm. you know, choose the, your words carefully, think about how you're going to do it with that individual, where are you going to do it, when are you going to do it, but equally at the end of it, and you've done your piece, button up, listen, see their body language. Are you leaving them in a good place, a better place? Are you leaving them okay with a tough message? But are they going to do something about it in a constructive way? It's no use leaving them in a shriveled wreck on the floor as you think park stage left because you know that it'll take you that they'll take them five days and, and, and equally outside there they're, you know the, the, the support staff will know they've been chewed up and it, you know it just it, it doesn't reflect on the business well and, and how you manage it's about leadership Leader, great leaders are, you know have have time great leaders do things in a personal and uh, caring way but they don't shirk away from uh, you know tough messages yeah I think the way that you just described that, Malcolm, in a sense, is completely consistent with the thesis so far about you know building a customer-centric culture, uh, culture by design. Because in a sense, if you're going to do that for uh, your your guests or your customers, um, you've really got to start with the people that work with and for you as well, because yeah. you can't really treat them differently. Otherwise, you're asking people to exist under one kind of atmosphere and do something completely different. Yeah. If you're being screamed at, you can't exactly go out on a park or be great to people at, uh, on the front desk, can you? So um, that makes makes absolute perfect sense to me and I think is a great way of linking really to what we were just talking about with standards and behaviours. People need to know what is required of them. Clarity goes back to the whole clarity of purpose uh, thing that we talked about. Giving them mechanisms to achieve it which I just love the four keys that Disney use. Uh, for me, that's kind of so simple, but yet so logical. Uh, you know, safety trumps everything, but you should always try to be courtesy. If you can't be courtesy, courteous rather, the efficiency and the showpiece then follow. I mean, it, to me, there is a logic to it. And then when you kind of bring it into great leadership, a great leader lives those values. Um, and, and clearly that's self-reinforcing. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, great leaders, they're not necessarily born, uh, although some would argue that they are, but I think, as with everything, there's an awful lot of training and effort that goes into creating that kind of leadership style. Um, you know, not everybody can be intuitively as good as we would like to think they could. So can you share a few more details about the kinds of experiences you've had when you've you know started your leadership career and the support and help you've had in getting to being a great leader uh, how long have you got well <laughs> as long as you know um i just think there are certain traits that are fundamentally um part of being a great leader and we've talked about one well i just referred to one as listening mm. um i, I I'll give you another one. There's, there's probably more, no more than four or five that I would say are sort of cardinal points that you've got to anchor the whole thing on. And we've mentioned attention to detail. Um, I would say decisiveness. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be infectious in terms of your passion. You've got to be infectious in terms of your inspirational style. Um, but 
You've got to be decisive. I, I always sometimes think you can learn because you do. You, you, you're inspired outside business in all walks of life by great leaders. And I've found great leaders. You know, when I was in America, um, I went, used to invite great leaders in to talk to 30, 40 of my team once a month. And, you know, my, my young son was, um, was uh, learning to play uh, a little league um, baseball, you know, and I didn't understand it, and neither did he, but we had a coach, and Ernie Santa, I can still remember his name now, and you know, he was a middle manager in a water park in, in Disney, and not in Disney, in, in Orlando, but as a coach, coaching 12 or tw 20 young 15-year-olds um, in baseball in a little league, I just watched in awe how he got the best out of these people, and my son was new to it, and not probably certainly the best on the team, in fact he probably be the weakest on the team because he'd really never done it before and he was small in stature but he made it, everyone feel great, he made, he bonded them into a team and you know I always remember he wasn't the greatest speaker but I invited him to, along to talk and he said well what do you want me to talk about? I said I want you to talk about how you, how you lead, he, he thought it was coaching, I said you're not coaching, you're a leader of that little Basketball, uh, baseball team and he talked for about an hour once he got going and lost his nerves he was you know he'd wanted to take away the little gold nuggets of how he, he managed um, so I, I think they come in all shapes and sizes but to me the worst leader you can have is somebody who's indecisive so you know I learned by great leaders around me whether they be coaches of Little League Baseball or you know, chairman of a company I wouldn't name the company and I certainly won't name the person but he was my chairman, and he was the most indecisive uh, boss or leader I've ever had. Anything I asked him or decision I'd go or for or idea I had, he'd said, uh, Malcolm, that's a great idea, I'll sleep on that. And normally he did. <laughs> and he never came back to me. <laughs> and uh, even when reminded, he said, yeah, 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 I'll think about that and come back to you. So, you know, you know either say yes or no, or say maybe, or come up with a better idea. So I think decisiveness is, you know, it, it sounds, everything sounds so simple when you, when you describe what a great leader is, but it, you've got to be decisive. And, you know, you don't have to make decisions on the fly and knee-jerk to make decisions. The best decisions are made with consultation, getting buy-in, getting different converging views, go outside into your different silos in your organization and get everybody from HR to training to sales and marketing, finance, everybody on the same page, get them involved in a project team or anything, and then make the decision and drive forward. That, that, that's a great leader to me. I don't know um, if, if you've read this, uh, Jack Welsh. Yeah. He, he's four E's and a P for yeah. leadership, and it's energy and energize. And then his third E is edge. And he said, no one likes a leader with maybe. No. Yes or no, yeah, just yeah. make a decision. And I think the last one is execute and then you wrap it up in passion. But I was wondering, both from Chris and Malcolm's perspective, obviously our whole theme has been about organisational culture by design about to make it customer-centric. Do you see organisations that do that well focus and invest in leadership? Do they, is it important to them? Is that the secret source that you said earlier as that was part of your piece? Is that one of the secret sources for them is that leadership is important? Let, let me have a go at the first and then I'll flick it over to Chris for his words of wisdom. You, you just mentioned Jack Ross, I don't want to, um, you know, I've read his books, but also I had the pleasure and, and just a great opportunity of listening to him because he used to, 
When I was at Disney, in fact, he was invited in because he was one of our partners, General Electric, and he, who, he was when he was chairman of General Electric or whatever he was, he, he came to speak and no notes, but he probably made the same speech 10 times or 20 times, but didn't need any notes, but no PowerPoint overheads. And he just spoke and walked up and down the, on the stage for talking to about 200 of us. And, you know, you, you were spellbound and his, his stories, his legendary stories, I don't know any about his sector in terms of General Electric, turbines and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he was talking about leadership. And uh, there was a guy, you know, short in stature, huge ego, uh, but, you know, engaging. And, um, you know, does everybody have to manage uh, and lead like Jack Welsh? No, they couldn't and they didn't. And you don't have to. So leaders come in all shapes and different sizes. There's certain things you have to deliver. And, you know, Traits and behaviors are, are key. If, if you don't walk the talk, and you, you, you'll soon be seen through. And you know, I hate to use the word, but you know, if you're full of bullshit and your own self-importance, you know, you, you will not get a team around you. You will not get a following. You, you won't be respected. So you have to earn respect pretty early on. So you know, every time I was moved on to a new job and you know went in there, you you leave. All of your track record at the door, and you go in with a completely white sheet of paper. So you have to build your credibility. You have to make a presence. You have to make an impact fairly early because you, you know, honeymoon's over after about the same day. They're expecting you to make decisions. They're expecting you to to look good, but more importantly, sound good and, and make it start making an impact. But uh, and certain traits you have to. So you have to. Have, have standards, you have to have personal standards and everything else. But you know, there's many of the things that we talked about and they, you know, you don't have to read Jack Welsh's book or the latest book on leadership. They're all there, they're just uh, reinvented, I guess. But um, to me, it's all about respect. You have to earn it early days. So get in there and put, the, and there's no shortage of, you have to put a tremendous amount of effort work and time into being effective as a new leader and becoming a great leader. You're not a great leader when you go into a new business. You're just the leader, the new leader, and you have to become great. To become great, you have to be earn the respect and you have to start molding the organization, maybe building a newish team or making some changes to make an impact. And you have to have some early wins. Every time I've run a business and or be part of a new a business, that is evolving, you have to get some early wins in there. So don't try to do everything at once. Try to, in the first three months, you know, the first 90 days is, you know, some, you, you probably know the title of it, but there's a great book about, you know, the first 90 days, and you've got to, you've got to use your time because it goes so quickly. And, you know, you're 90 days old and you haven't done anything, and nobody's talking about you. You, you never, you can't turn the clock back, you've only got, one impression, you know, you don't have a second chance to make a first impression, so you've got to score early. So you've got to get a win in that's recognized as something that you've added and valued to the business. Don't take personal credit for it, but you've added to the business. And then you've got to drive an agenda and prioritize. You know, if you try to do everything, you'll fail. So, and, and, and you know, you won't run out of, uh, you won't run out of money, you won't run out of ideas, you'll run out of time. So you have to manage time. We were talking about over lunch, time management. 
You have to manage your time effectively in an organization. So great leaders manage their time effectively. They prioritize what they're going to achieve. They, they think about how they're going to achieve those big wins and how it's the best way. It's not bottom down. We talked about that earlier. It's a mixture of bottoms up, top down, and a lot of stuff in the middle. And it doesn't happen overnight. You can't impose something. You have to get buy-in. To get buy-in, you have to spend a lot of time with consultation, get people's opinions, and then you've got to be decisive and move. And then do all the things that we talked about earlier in terms of putting measurement in place, tweaking it. You're never going to get it 100% right. There's no new initiative or new business, new hotel, theme park that I've ever opened that is 100% right, but it should be 90% right. But then identify very early on the tweaks you need to make to, to improve it. Get on those fast. Because you know, the longer you leave them there, the more they'll fester. And uh, you know, in no particular order, we keep referring to catching people doing things right, but equally deal with the poor performers early. Deal with them in the right way, the most dignified way, and you will be a win-win. It will be a win-win that you'll get somebody who's more accomplished and better suited for that role. You'll also, it'll be a sign to the other people who are watching, did mm -hmm. you deal with that poor performer that they were standing out like a sore thumb? Yes, they did, and now it's, it's better. So, and by the way, we better improve us. You know, we might be under the spotlight next, so that works as a win-win. And then, you know, I, I just think you've got to be always looking over your shoulder because if you think you're the biggest and the best, either as a leader or in an organisation, you'll soon get caught. There's no th such thing as a, you know, we've got a USP, you'll be copied, you'll be improved and better in no time at all. So you've got to really set a very fast pace. Speed to market is a, something that a lot of people who I've worked with and work within organizations have heard me say, speed to market is key. So, you know, time is of the essence, get on with it and make a decision and make things happen. And speed to market is, is key. I mean, it's frustrating to us all when now with technology, you expect, you know, I could, like my wife, or, or I never understood it. She, at six, five o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, she says, I need a new mouse for uh, my, it's, um, you know, my iPad, iPad or something. And she gets onto Amazon Prime. And blimey, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night, there's a knock on the door and it's delivered. Speed to market. I mean, it's what we've come to expect now. It's true in most businesses. You know, big, if you if you're retooling a new big plant or you're buying new technology you're in whatever production there is a cycle and it may take some time but speed to market is very very key so set a realistic and pretty pacey goal in terms of time and then manage time well and prioritize so you know blame me i've said 25 different things <laughs> but you know it it's not rocket science uh, great leadership, but it doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't happen easy. And if you relax and you start believing in your own BS and that you are great, uh, you're going to get eaten alive. So, uh, you know, I've never ever been in any role and relaxed. And, uh, you know, maybe thing I was feeling that, you know, we were doing well and, you know, some of the benchmarks that were set we were achieving or improving or beating, you know. It made me even want to go, uh, that horrible expression that I sometimes use, bigger, better, faster, cheaper. You had to go faster. You had to get uh, more pace and momentum in the business. 
and be more decisive, prioritize maybe reduce the number of things you're trying to do and do everything really well. And nothing worse than pulling something off and achieving it. And you think, oh, if I'd only spend a little bit more time and attention and resource that, in, it would have been better. You can't go back more often than not, it's too late. Do it well, do, do, do uh, fewer things and do them really well would be my, I hope that's on my gravestone. Uh, you, uh, we absolutely resonate with the, the principles of the execution, the four disciplines, and that's one of the key things, isn't it? Focus on what's wildly important, but do two or three things with excellence. So Chris, do you see, similar question to you, but do you see organisations that have embedded the kind of culture that you've been talking about today? Disney obviously is one example, but do you see that they are investing in the leadership traits and qualities that uh, Malcolm's just been talking about? Yes, and I would, I would just add to the, what Malcolm said about decisiveness is I think that great leaders also are very, um, they, will, they will adapt the vision when it needs to be adapted um, decisively, mm. but they will also defend the values and not change the values, particularly if there's turbulence. Um, would be my, and I think there's a tendency, I've seen quite a lot of organisations that do the opposite. So they're too slow to change the vision and be decisive about what they do, um, but they're too quick to change the values and, mm. and sacrifice the values. And I think people can see that, that sort of inconsistency and um, sort of jeopardising things and not standing up for people when times don't go so well. Mm -hmm. One thing you do find is that when a company's small, that is quite often all of that leadership and that laser-like focus on the customer and that pulling the organisation together is vested in a founder and the founder's mentality. I think the question is, how do you then institutionalise that when the organisation gets you know, 30, 40, 50 to thousands of people and I think that you you need to you need to continually invest in the leadership but ultimately you want to put it into a place where it's systemic across the whole organization mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be sustained by leadership and by investing in leadership but what you don't want is it to be dependent on leadership or the one individual. Or the one yeah, individual. I see, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, you move from the founder's mentality where it's all embodied in this one person, then you need to um, institutionalise it without bureaucratising it across the organisation. I mean, in effect, you sort of want, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but you want everybody to be a leader. Mm. But in the sense that everybody's pulling in the same direction. Absolutely. I mean, for me, that kind of brings everything very, very neatly together. Uh, so I think what we've seen very, very clearly here is that great organisations do intentionally build um, a, a culture, and, and that's well exemplified in culture by design. So for any of our listeners at this moment who uh, want to find out more about that particular subject in a huge amount more depth, 
um, we would recommend that they do actually go and look for it. Uh, done in conjunction, I believe, with Cranfield, is that Cranfield School of Management, yes. Yeah, we'll make sure that we put a link to your website so that people can find that white paper. And as I completely concur with Andy here, it's a great tool. One of the things I just wanted to kind of also just touch upon at the end is that you guys have got a host of experience both in Disney and outside of Disney. Uh, if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, how could they help me? What, what could Polaris Jack do for my organisation? Just how generally would you approach working with a client? How would you, what would be a, a starting point for you, for any of our listeners who might want to know a little bit more about how you could help them? Um, well, it won't surprise you that the starting point is figuring out exactly what it is the <laughs> customer okay. values. Um, we should do a podcast about that. Yeah, I mean, really, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the Clayton Christensen piece. Is you know, how do you really, really, really understand what it is and get um, buy-in on what it is that your customer, um, what what is a fair exchange of value for the customer, free from the solutions, so that you can you can be really clear on what it is that the customer is looking for. Then I, what, um, and there's a lot of other stuff that we do, that we, but fundamentally is also how do you build that into that overarching framework so that you've got that invisible hand, if you like, mm-hmm. and then um, how do you permeate that into the organisation? And may I ask, do you find with many of your clients that they think they've got that nailed? And yeah, we know exactly what our customers want. And then by the questions and the tools diagnostic that you use, you unpick it and they go, oh, actually, we're not really sure about this. This is really good. We need to get deeper. Or is it a case of, actually, we've no idea, help us? Um, well, I think by, on a probability basis, if, you, if, you, if that piece of um, McKinsey research is representative, then it's probably about 22% who really know what... Mm. Um, the customers really value. Can articulate. Can 22% of boards can, according to McKinsey, can articulate what it is that how they add value to the customer. Right. Um, so scary. it's quite scary. Yeah. And um, it, you, you, as I said, if the board can't articulate it, it's hard for the. You know, if you go up to an employee, it's very hard for the employee to articulate it. And I think there's. Um, it's about articulating, as I said, it's about articulating it in a very precise and clear fashion um, that, that will endure because um, needs move much more slowly than um, solutions. Solutions move very rap- rapidly. So you want to, if you can understand those slower moving needs at a fundamental level, then you've got an anchor that you can use as a filter for decision making, which will last and unless there's a fundamental change in the market, which will endure um, a, a, a good period of time, which will allow you to then permeate, permeate it across the organisation and it becomes self-reinforcing. If you're constantly chasing solutions, mm. then those are moving so rapidly in the light sand that it, 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 it makes it much more difficult to have any sort of consistency and continuity, I think. Cause yeah, it, it, it's absolutely correct. I think, you know, we've, we've come across 
I think clients in their own experience, which or who rather um, are looking for a silver bullet solution to the answer to all their prayers, to all their woes. And actually what we've actually had to encourage them to do is to take a couple of steps back before they can make that final step forward. And I think this is exactly the value that uh, Laura's Jack brings to the party in that sense. And it's been extremely illuminating from that point of view. Yeah, and I often say that um, in, from an MMU point of view, my job is not to provide answers, it's to ask better questions. And you've helped me today definitely think well, some of those questions that our listeners, organisations taking part should be asking themselves. And sometimes we just assume we know the answers or we think, oh, someone did that years ago. We don't need to change it. Well, the core values maybe don't, it's your point. Maybe they should stand firm in the sand, but maybe the, the processes and strategies do need to be adaptable. Well, I suppose our view is, is that if is values can appear to be quite fluffy and quite difficult to change, but if you start with the customer piece and the, the customer culture, then you can. it gives you a, a solid foundation and a solid commercial foundation um, for the, embedding that culture in the organisation. And then mm-hmm. the, 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 what, what, you, what we would call the organisational values, which are sort of more internal and in how we do things around here, if they need to be adjusted, they can be adjusted to, to suit the commercial customer part of it. And that is an easier job than just going in and changing the values, I think. Very good. Um, well, I think that's been incredibly informative. Um, so, look, I'd just like to say at this stage, thank you so much indeed to, to Malcolm Ross and to Chris, who for joining us uh, today and sharing their, their fantastic insights from uh, careers in very much customer-facing organisations, such as the ones they've described today. So, uh, thank you very much indeed. It was our absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you, guys. So, of course, I echo Andy's thanks to our two interviewees today, Malcolm Ross and Chris Humphrey. I think you'll agree they have a huge amount of expertise and experience and insight between them. Um, Key takeaways for me from this episode, again, trying to keep it simple, three key things. Firstly, the four keys, this idea of distilling the quality standards uh, to make clear what the purpose is about, but how you bring it to life, the decision-making process, how you filter what you need to do. Disney have kept it simple and enduring for over 60 years with their four keys. The importance of measuring, uh, having observable and coachable behaviours that you can measure, but keeping it simple, but also constantly reinforcing, partly through recognition, but also through that measurement to make sure that the keys are never forgotten and always remain front of mind for all members of the team. And lastly, I think Malcolm's view on leadership is, is very uh, very interesting, and particularly that point around, yes, inspirational leadership, but inspirational leadership, you have to be visible. You have to be there, you have to be available, you have to be out there to see and hear what's going on, and to be available in, from the point of view of an open door, not to literally, uh, to your team and your colleagues and your customers. So thanks again. Uh, I want to highlight the document, the uh, Cranfield 
good work that Deplorus Jack have done, the white paper, that available uh, to you to download for free from their website and you can find the, the link in the show notes for that white paper. Uh, my thanks, of course, to Andy Ball for conducting an interview with me and ever our producer, Sam Walsh, who uh, tirelessly sifts through the recordings and uploads these episodes to iTunes and SoundCloud, etc. If you're enjoying the series, please don't hesitate. Share it with your friends and colleagues in the restaurant and hospitality, food and beverage, retail industries. Let's spread the word about some of these great conversations that we're having. Until next time, take care all.